Hey, everybody. This is uh, Jason Bowman, and I'm here with Steve Pike. And it is such an honor to connect with you guys today. Uh, we've got a great interview lined up. Uh, we are talking about the next wave, what church looks like in the 21st century. Uh, I'm here with author of the Next Wave book, Steve Pike. Steve, glad to be here with you, man. Thanks, Jason. Uh, excited to have this conversation today. Yeah, well, I think it's a conversation I, in a lot of part that in large part that I feel like you and I have been having off and on for, you know, the better part of a decade plus. So uh, how to reach people, how, how to plant churches, how to disciple people, how to connect. And it just it's been an honor to have connected with you so many times over the last couple decades, some of them very early in my own yeah. ministry journey, very formative. Uh, I, I think one point you said, Jason, you're not ready to plant a church. So I just <laughs> want to say thank you for that. Uh, but uh, that, that was a long time ago. Uh, there were other moments where I wish you would have said, Jason, you're still not ready to plant a church. Uh, that's not what this, uh, this hour is about. Uh, today, though, we're talking about uh, really uh, one of the shifts in your book, chapter one. Yeah about rediscovering, uh, the church and, yeah. uh, and, and you've, man, maybe give a little recap of your journey. Yeah. You, you've been a, yeah. a, a church planning director, church planter, church planting director launched, uh, arguably, uh, one of the largest church plant, uh, movements, uh, in our generation. Um, yeah. you've done a lot, but then, but then you kind of gave all that up and, and you moved into a high rise. Can you give us just kind of a, in a nutshell, what, <laughs> That yeah. Story yeah. 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 So yeah, you're right. You, that's a pretty good summary uh, of my journey. And uh, yeah, I, I, I started this thing called uh, church multiplication network. I, I, when I say I started it, that's really unfair because we had a great team of people that were thinking together about how do we create an atmosphere where people that are called to start the church and everywhere uh, can feel support and be resourced and stuff. So anyway, that's what Church Multiplication Network is all about. And it's God's blessing that and we, we're so grateful for what's happening through Church Multiplication Network. But what that did for me was it gave me a, a seat uh, uh, looking at what was going on globally in the church. Well, especially in, in the United States. And I, I started to notice a problem that it looked like the church was was not going back into the cities at the same time there was a lot of uh, movement back into the cities um, and I really was curious about what that was why that was happening I started doing some research and long story short felt compelled by God to blow up my perfectly good job and and launch out to, to start this thing called Urban Islands Project which was intended to help us figure out how to get the church back into the city and on the way to do that, I discovered some principles that are necessary for ministry in the city that you helped me realize are not just about the city, because what we really, what we started talking about was the, the big culture that we're all kind of breathing, you know, the water we swim in, the 21st century culture is being kind of birthed in the city. And if we can figure out how to be the church in the city, then you're kind of figuring out how to be the church everywhere. And that was, so I started writing Next Wave as a book about urban church planning, but realized this is really about being effective in ministry in the 21st century. These are what these shifts are about. And you really helped me discover that. So we kind of teamed up and you helped me get this book out and here we are. <laughs> well, and, you know, we're so honored to be a part of this content and this conversation uh, really am. And I remember that conversation was like, hey, here's some principles. Here's some shifts that I think churches need to make to reach people in the urban environment. And yeah. as you were giving that, a lot of my neighbors, a lot of my friends that I interact with, and we live deep in the suburbs. Uh, yeah. but as, as you were going over your shifts, I thought my friends that aren't in church, I thought that's what it's going to take to reach them. That's yeah. what check, check, check. That's what it's going to take to reach them. That's what it's going to take to reach them. And, you know, just realizing that this content, and I think it starts with where we're at today uh, and in this conversation, just reimagining what is church. And, and a couple of weeks ago on the Next Wave platform, you were interviewing Alan Hirsch. And he said, that yeah. as one of the big questions that our generation has to wrestle with, maybe every generation, but we'll get to our interview here in a second. Yeah. Maybe what is the church? Right. Yeah. So we've yeah. got a special guest with us here today, Steve. And uh, yeah, 
I'll save the thunder for you because, uh, man, <laughs> great, great opportunity. Great. Man, just uh, honored to be on this call. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So Jason, you've, you, that is, I, I mean, that's really where you have to start in the discussion. And uh, part of that, the fact that you recognize this is, um, is, is testament to the, the need for the shift. I mean, you, you set out to start this church in St. Louis and ran into some super, super significant headwinds. And one of those was actually another shift we'll talk about a, on an upcoming show, which is the funding shift. You had to, you're, you're realizing, wait, I got to, I got to figure out a different way for finances to support this church. And so you, you actually started what now is arts be creative. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that, that is the, you guys have helped us get this message out. So it's kind of cool how this is all coming together, but, but what, what you affirmed was, yeah, you got to start with what is the church? What is the church? And, you know, I felt, I, I had some ideas and some thoughts, but um, kind of felt a little insecure to answer that question without having people that really know theology and history and stuff like that guiding my my thinking and my my conversation because i was developing these ideas in fact the answer to that that we came up with the next wave is the church is a community of disciples on mission with jesus and and that's what we often refer to as minimal ecclesia minimal viable ecclesiology um anyway we when I say we, uh, that is, uh, I, I lean on friends like my friend, Dr. Charlie Self, who is our guest with us today. And Charlie is a, I think he's a historian first, a, a theologian. Um, he's a, a seminary professor uh, that has been used by God. He's, he's served as a pastor, as a leader, has been immersed in the church his entire ministry and life. And um, currently is serves as one of the directors for Made to Flourish, which is a fabulous organization that I hope everybody that's watching this is is able to take uh, to benefit from. So anyway, Charlie, I am so glad that you're here. And I'm just going to cut to the chase right now and say, okay, I just threw out my little definition uh, of of minimal church. And, and as a theologian and historian, am I anywhere near in the ballpark of being right on that? <laughs> um, well, you know this. Uh, and thank you, Jason and Steve, for letting me be part of the conversation. Um, the, the answer is absolutely yes, because you have the three most important elements that constitute church. And let's go back yeah. one step. The gospel creates the church. Yeah, yeah. The kingdom of God, yeah. preached and demonstrated by Jesus Christ and his followers, creates the church, and the church exists to serve that gospel and mission. And so, um, and so I, I just want to say without qualification, yes, your ecclesiology, yeah. though we can enhance it, expand it, um, yeah. and embellish it in good ways, uh, is yeah. absolutely the other way that some mentors of mine said it's people in a place with a purpose. And that purpose is the glory of God and the good of others. That purpose is um, the, life, the life of the world. And so, yeah. uh, but uh, one thing I came to this interview with was a reminder from a man named Ernest Gordon, who survived POW camps in the Pacific and became dean at Princeton years ago. He said, don't ever forget that Christ is the revelation. Christianity yeah. is the community that emerges from that. And Christendom is the civilization influenced by it. And these aren't bad things, but he says, we don't ever want to miss the explosion. Theology is studying the ashes. The explosion is the experience of Jesus in community. And so I think wow. you've, you've given us a really great place to start. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to know I'm, I'm not uh, wandering off into heresy here. Um, oh. Um, but the, here's the thing. When I say something that, that actually sounds really simple, a community of disciples with Jesus on his mission. And um, when I first started thinking that way, you know, I was, I was trying to untangle or, or I, I, was, I, I saw that what, what I felt like was happening was the church was adding a whole bunch of stuff. And I say the church, the capital C, the people of the church were uh, leaders were sort of adding a lot of things that people were starting to see as well, this has to be present for the church to be real. This has to be present. And some of those had to do with, you know, for some people, they didn't really consider a church 
real unless there was a building uh, because that, and the reason for that was not because they thought the building was a church, but that it represented stability and it represented, um, you know, something that's, that's going to stay and last, you know, and, and, and so there were good reasons why, but yet that became the focus. It seemed like for uh, the church, maybe in the 20th century, it was, you know, you got to have a building and you got to have a clergy and you got to have programs and you got to have this, got to have that. And, my, my conclusion was that was actually put, that attitude that you had to have all this expensive, uh, complicated structure was actually becoming an impediment to the advancement of the church. And it was in some and some people actually, again, had concluded, you know, the church has evolved to this point where these are necessary for the church to be real. So what I'd love to do is take a minute and ask you just to take us back to think about what, what are some of the expressions of the church over the centuries, you know, going back to the earliest church and maybe some other examples where you say, this was the viable church, but it was, it was minimalist in the sense that it didn't, it didn't have all, all necessarily all of these, these trappings. What are some examples of that over the history of the church? Well, and by the way, the, the issue of, of church as movement, church as institution, isn't an either or. Uh, humankind, yeah. we build institutions. In fact, right. if two or three people meet consistently for any length of time, there will be traditions even in two or three people meeting. So we're not anti-institution so much as not wanting to lose the vitality. So let me give you an example. We often idealize the early church, but as soon as the second century, they had a clear ecclesial hierarchy to guarantee the faith of deacon, priest, and bishop. Uh, in, fact, in fact, all of our great doctrine came out of uh, confronting heresies. Uh, by the third century, they have libraries, schools, church buildings, institutions, because the Roman Empire is burning them down and persecuting them. Mm -hmm. um, so at every phase of the church, there are expressions of institution, but then the institution needs to be renewed. So then you have mm -hmm. the monastic movement in the third and fourth century. Man, things are so worldly. We're getting involved with the state. We're going to go off to the desert. And then pretty soon they build communities. <laughs> and St. Benedict builds one of the most extraordinary rules of life and community that's going to last a thousand years. Uh, and they become even economically self-sufficient and begin hospitals and hospitality and compassion and economic change. So um, you have these movements. Uh, I'll give you another example. St. Francis, he's kind of the patron saint of everybody these days. You know, he's brother, son and sister moon and eco-groovy and the new pope and everything else. And he was dedicated to the gospel, to miracles, to lady poverty. But before he died, his own movement was arguing over money and land. Um, hmm. You know, John Wycliffe, the famous English reformer that translated the scriptures, he was adamant that the church sort of de-institutionalize and stop owning all the land and controlling the nation and wanted to bring the church back to its simplicity of the gospel. I just wrote a chapter in a book on 16th century missions. By the way, Protestants cared about missions before William Carey came along. And, um, but the Anabaptists, they had a mission convention in 1527. 60 people joined together to go two by two, and they were all but three were martyred three years later. And uh, they were doing house churches. Huh. Um, so we can keep going. John Wesley's Methodist movement. I mean, what a radical thing, small bands, larger classes, meeting halls. And so it's so exciting. Yet at the same time, Methodism became an institution. And of course, praise God, uh, in need of renewal. Uh, one more example, um, many who love missions and love outreach remember the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles, this uh, Pentecostal moment that was multicultural, multiracial, men and women experiencing the spirit. You had a kingdom sociology for two and a half years, and then they went back to the old one, divided by race, class, and oh, other issues. Man. And so man. the church has always felt this tension. And the key thing is the ferment of change that becomes the formation of an institution. You have to continually renew it and make it nimble, or it becomes its own end. And, yeah. uh, and that's what right now the global church uh, is exploding in the non-Western world and beginning to re-evangelize us, praise be to God, and they're also building big buildings now. So they're yeah. going to be in need, they're going to be in need of renewal as well, because we're just, we're still 
in God's divine plan, he's decided to be inefficient and use people. And yeah. we're, so we still have to keep an eye out for these things. Wow. Wow. And when I hear about all those transitions, you know, and how this started and did well, and then, you know, but then turned inward, whatever, you know, how are all the different ways you describe that, you know, I, I think about, you know, the teaching on the new wine needs to be a new wine skins. And, yes. you know, I'm, I'm in a group of some leaders. We've just been reading through the gospels together and getting together weekly and talking about what Jesus might be saying for us, you know, and what the church is. It's been a phenomenal experience. We call it the Jesus experience, but in that there was a little verse in, in Luke five, that had just stood out to some of us for the first time. And it was when Jesus was teaching on the new wine belongs in new wineskins. Uh, he go, he, he concludes that teaching with no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine. They say other translations say the old is good. And, and I think, you know, as we wrestle with the next, and I think this pandemic and, and everything we've all lived through in the last 18 months has been just a, a, a realizer, a, 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 a revelation that the 21st century is here, right? We're already a fifth of the way through it. Um, the, this, this new age is here. And so as we think about like wrestling with not tearing down the old, no one who drinks the old 20th century wine says it's bad. And we're not saying it's bad. It was good. You did good. But now what this next, and I love that concept. I want to go back to it. Steve mentioned it. Dr. Self, I know you talk about it a lot. Uh, everyone's heard about a minimum viable product, the MVP. You've taught on the MVC, the minimum viable church. And one of the panelists uh, or one of the people listening right now asked us, the panelists, that they recently had someone tell them that it can't be considered church without corporate worship. That was a specific question. So I'd love for you to talk about Minimum viable church for a minute as it relates to the new wine. What does it look like globally? Maybe also in our own United States context, what has to be there? Is there things that have to be there for it to be church? Does it have to have corporate worship? And, and, and real quick, before you uh, get into that, for those of you that are just logging on, uh, we are so glad to have you. I'm here with, I'm Jason Bowman. I'm here with Steve Pike, author of Next Wave and Dr. Charlie Self. And we are trying to crack the code of 21st century ministry uh, on this exponential platform. Uh, just glad to have be a part of the conversation. So if you have questions as we get through this, please drop them in the comments and we'd love to get to them. Talk about Minimum Viable Church. Do you have to have corporate worship? Steve, I'm going to let you jump in first, and then I'll add some color commentary. Pick up the pieces. You'll pick up the pieces. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll make a mess, and you clean it up, Charlie. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's an interesting question, because I, I would want to know what they mean by corporate worship, um, because I think that the, the simple answer is, that's a natural, if, if it's a community of disciples, going back to the definition that, that we give, well, disciples are following Jesus. Part of following Jesus is worshiping Jesus, is, 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 is joining, you know, corporately, uh, yeah, corporately worshiping Jesus. Now, what form that worship takes, how that looks, does it require a group of people to all be standing in the same direction with somebody up on a stage with a guitar or something, you know, leading them in, in songs and singing and stuff? Is that necessary for corporate worship to be occurring? Um, my answer, and, and I, you know, say this with, with fear and trembling because it's about to be judged by the history and the, and the theology that, that Charlie will, but I would just say, you know, the, the point is, are we worshiping God and, and are we, are we in unity as we do that? And there's a lot of forms that, that worship can, can take that can certainly include singing songs together or, but, but, you know, I, I know I'm familiar with people that are worshiping. I know your, your wife is an artist and there's ways for that art to be even uh, expressed in a way that unites people. And, and that, that's a form of corporate worship. Um, so what I, what I love, what I think is possible is that, yes, I'd say corporate worship needs to happen. But again, the form of that, there's, there's freedom and flexibility 
within God's economy to allow for us to worship him together in ways that don't just reflect one lane of how that worship is expressed. So Charlie, clean up that mess, please. There's no mess to clean up because the community is a mess. And that's really the point of the New Testament is uh, there is a deep assumption flowing out of the synagogue tradition of Judaism and flowing right into the expanded Israel. To borrow N.T. Wright's uh, methodology here, uh, isn't it wonderful that God has brought Jew and Gentile together, and we would say every nation, tribe, and tongue? And the starting point is the table is is a bath and a meal is baptism and the table of the Lord. And what's interesting is, so I would say uh, to, to the query brought to our conversation here, yes. To be a local church is to gather, in, and God calls the meeting, and we gather in response to it. And I, I, I love uh, Robert Weber saying, we're gathering in response to the invitation of the king, and, uh, and we're being then blessed, equipped, empowered to go out to do the king's work. But the forms it takes, we all know there are caverns and cathedrals and caves and houses, and, and what ends up happening is we argue over the form, and we can miss the substance. And I think what's happening, our dear, many of our dear Catholic and Orthodox friends rightly focused on the table, but became a distant altar. And then a reformation happens and we go, oh, it's a table again. And we're singing songs. And then we elevate the pulpit. And in the last couple hundred years, we begin to see maybe God's people ought to be participating while we still have a table. We still have a talk. So I would say that the minimum viable uh, gathering needs to include those prayers, songs, instructions, scriptures that bring us together. The forms can be led by the Spirit of God, contextualized for the area, and can envelop a variety of ecclesiologies. By the way, James's church in Jerusalem and Paul's church in Antioch would have looked very different. Yeah. And um, Silk Road Christianity for a thousand years, from 400 to 1400, with no empire behind it, established small communities very few church buildings, but millions of people coming to Christ while we see some of the other developments that we still honor today. So, um, yes, there needs to be worship. The two things that, that characterize church are worship and witness. Yeah. And one of yeah. the problems is we forget who we're worshiping and we forget who we're witnessing about and we begin to think about whether we're happy. Oh, man. Yeah, well, that, you know, you're talking about the differences in churches and uh, and even brought up Jerusalem and Antioch. And that that I've been in lots of conversations recently about that because it fascinates me along this conversation. What is church? How do you fulfill mission? And we've got another question that is right in those lines. I remember a quote uh, from the late, great uh, Gary McGee, uh, church historian. And he said that the church has looked different and sounded different every 50 years and every 500 miles from Jesus. <laughs> and then, and then he went on to say that the church becomes the church loses its distinctive historically when it becomes synonymous with a culture, hmm. but it, but it lives. And the, the message of Jesus is most alive when the church is adapting to the next, it's learning a new language. It's learning a new culture. You mentioned Jerusalem and Antioch. Jerusalem gets the Great Commission. It gets the Acts 1-8. Go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the, you're going to be my witness. You'll worship here, and then you're going to be my witness to the ends of the earth. And then they stayed there. And what we see is the missionary thrust in that first century comes out of Antioch, which would have been considered probably the ends of the earth from, if you took that anyway, I just, I'm curious, and one of the questions was, how do we make church missional? And I'm going to leave it there. They, they qualified it. They said, you know, instead of programmatic. Uh, the question was, how do we make church missional and not simply focused on what families need in terms of programming? Seems like we end up sliding back into programs no matter how much we try to break away from it. So yeah. right now, here we are trying to crack the code of the 21st. We're trying to, we're trying to be, we're talking about what does the church look like in our century, in our, among us, how do we keep from sliding back? Yeah, that new wineskin, Doctor. I'm gonna. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna make a mess and let you clean it up, Charlie. Because okay. I. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, 
So, <laughs> man, that that is such a great question because it's always it's always the challenge. And and the I think you 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 so my answer would be uh, the mission of Jesus is 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 part of what the church is about. We're called to be on mission with Him, and His mission was very simply expressed in He said. I came to seek and save that which is lost. And so there's the seeking and the saving part of the mission action of the church. And then when you realize it's a community of disciples, we're called, Jesus never said to go start churches or institutions or any of this stuff. He said, go make disciples. And when we do that, then the church emerges out of that. And so, you know, the, the, the way to help a church stay focused on the mission of Jesus is to keep circling back and keep asking, how are we being with Jesus to seek and to save that which is lost? How are we doing that? What are we doing? And is everything that we're doing helping further that that mission of Jesus? And when we keep circling back to that, it helps us filter all of the activities, all, all the structures. So what happens is you, you start doing that and then you, you form habits and those habits become institutions. And, and that's, again, that's what Charlie's talking about is this, this cycle of, of kind of innovation. Uh, and then you form good habits and those habits become people forget why they're doing them. And so we have to keep reminding ourselves, why are we here? What are we called? What is Jesus doing? And go follow him and be with that. Okay, Charlie, clean it up, please. <laughs> no, no, I, I only want to enhance it and say this. One of the ways we stay on mission is that we don't separate evangelism and discipleship anymore. That when we share, when we share the gospel, we're sharing the explosive power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So you have to believe the story. And then my favorite word in this context is programs, uh, structures, serve the outcome, serve the aim of the life of Jesus growing in people. And so um, we can communicate to a, a pre-Christian, whatever phrase you want to put it, to those not yet fully engaged with Christ, we can communicate, this is what the life of Jesus looks like. This is yeah. how he touches every dimension of life. This is what it means to follow. And G.K. Chesterton was right. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found hard and rarely tried. And mm -hmm. I think that by hard, it's not so much the, the demands as it is the will. I think part of keeping the church on mission is reminding people that in, at the end of the day, to come and be, be part of, of the Lord and part of his community is to yield our will to the king and not join a cult and not cease to be who we are, but to really know he's king. Scott, Mc, yeah. Scott McKnight wrote that beautiful book, The King Jesus Gospel. And uh, mm -hmm. it's in the end, we can't, so when we're out, quote, evangelizing, we're actually calling people to be disciples, and as we describe what the life of a disciple looks like, my friend Glenn Davis at Stanford challenges non-Christians to behave as a Christian for 30 days. Uh, these seekers that are interested in Jesus, he said, start praying, start reading the Bible, start thinking about what Jesus would do, and a huge percentage come to faith when they realize that the way of Jesus is so powerful. And so we have a dearth of depth, depth and a surplus of superficiality, but this is not new. By the, right. by the third, fourth century, there were re actually second century for renewal movements concerned about people just coming to the church as spectators. Yeah. So let's, let's not separate evangelism and discipleship. Let's not separate um, personal uh, call to faith from transformation of systems and society. Let's not separate uh, things that we so often separate. And uh, I, I'm excited that you're doing the Jesus way. Um, but Jesus himself said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. So it, still, it comes back to the story and the explosive nature of Good Friday and Easter being experienced by the power of the Spirit. Um, and the other thing is, I love what one person said, Vincent Donovan in Christianity Rediscovered, that whenever the gospel goes to a new community, it creates a new song. It creates, it's a new language. It, so he discovered in evangelizing the Messiah of Kenya, that in the course of teaching about Jesus and calling them to faith and baptism, the Holy Spirit began to pour out gifts and create a church from the gospel. 
And he goes, and they did this without a priest. They did this mm -hmm. without the institution. The gospel mm -hmm. will create a church. And then we want to be there to nourish and nurture that new life. Love that. And, and honestly, you're, you're just getting ahead of uh, us, but in a wonderful way, you're, we're drinking the same from the same fountain chapter two and where we'll be in two weeks, right back here. Those tuning in right now, we're talking about uh, cracking that code of, uh, of the church in the 21st century with uh, interviewing Dr. Charlie Self. I'm Jason Bowman with Artspeak Creative, Steve Pike, author of Next Wave. And, uh, you know, today we're talking about what is the church, rediscovering that. Um, next, next session in two weeks, we're going to talk about reimagining discipleship. And Steve, you wrote a lot about very similar to what Dr. Yeah. Self is saying about how discipleship doesn't just start at, at, at a salvation and a prayer, but it can intentionally start with your neighbors. It can intentionally start today with those that didn't sign up for a program but we can, as disciplers, begin to intentionally connect with, introduce uh, those that are, are not yet signed up to be followers of Christ, but maybe interested in relationship. I'd love, Steve, if you even had a minute, a story. I know that's, you've embodied this more than most people I know, giving up your corporate uh, church leadership job, church planting. I mean, you're the, the, the famous church planting guru to, to go move into a high rise in downtown Denver so that you could try to crack the code of the church in the 21st century in our urban environments. Could, do you have a story that you could share? <laughs> oh oh man well uh yeah i have a million stories to share uh i think it but it's it's my own part of it is just my own journey in, in discovering what charlie just said is that you when we disconnect discipleship from evangelism and make them two separate things we we just don't understand how that i don't think we understand the biblical nature of those two things um and i often say evangelism happens inside of discipleship or disciple making, you know, uh, what we, we, we're always making disciples and we're making a disciple when we, uh, encounter in my case, my neighbors in the hallway, as I'm leaving my apartment on the, on the fourth floor of this high rise. Um, you know, it's one of the things that happened for me was it put me a lot closer to people that were not following Jesus, just living here because, it, in other places I've lived, they were, they were across the street and, you know, we all drove in and I'm, I'm probably exaggerating slightly here, but it's my experience of being somebody living in the suburbs. You know, I, I, I pushed my, my garage door opener as I drove into the community past all my neighbors, drove in, pushed the garage door and it closes. And so I had to be more intentional. If I wanted to connect with my neighbors, I had to, I had to do something more intentional here um, I, you know, I bump into my neighbors on the way to the elevator. I ride the elevator with them and, and, you know, we walk our dogs and all kinds of stuff. And in the process of doing that, it dawned on me that, um, my encounter on the elevator with somebody is the beginning of the process of making disciples because I'm helping them take a step toward Jesus just by being around me as a follower of Jesus. And so, uh, man, I, I, I hesitate. I guess I'm I'm cautious about telling stories because uh, you know my neighbors are precious to me. Uh, but I'll, I'll I'll give an anonymized story uh, that that will help uh, illustrate the point. These are real people, but I'm not going to share who they are. But you know we we had so when 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 I think about um, making a disciple now, I start thinking about well the first thing I want to do is make people aware of me in a positive way. So I met. I met one of our, our neighbor, neighbor couples who happened to be two ladies that are, that are sharing life together. And, um, it was, um, you know, we just met them in the hallway and, uh, I, I introduced myself, they introduced themselves to me. And one of the things I always do when I meet somebody that, that is new is I, I do my best to remember their name and begin to pray for them. And so uh, that's what I did with these with these folks and uh, learn their names and begin to pray for them. And then, you know, over the next few months, we, we kept bumping into each other and we, we actually had some meals together and just talked about life. There was no I, I didn't I, I don't 
I no longer feel this pressure to, to feel like I have to start just quoting Bible verses and stuff to people because Jesus is in me and the Holy Spirit is in me. And what I found is that we, as we have these conversations, they start asking things or opportunities come up where I can ask a question that helps bring up a spiritual conversation. And so, you know, one day, one of, one of these ladies came out of, uh, out of the, uh, their apartment and, and she said, and she was weeping. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, we, we broke up. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the religious side of me wanted to say, well, that's great. You know, you're moving in the right direction. Um, but the Jesus part of me realized here's a person whose heart is broken because somebody that they care about and love, they feel rejected by that person. And it was like the spirit said, that's how Jesus knows what that feels like. And you need to tell her that. And so I just said, you know what? I think God brought me here for a reason. And that's to tell you that he understands how you feel. And, and she was taken back. She'd never heard anything like that. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, he was rejected by, he felt rejected not only by the people that he'd been discipling for three years, but his family, even his father. I mean, he felt complete rejection. So he understands what it feels like. And he wants to walk with you through, he wants you to know that he wants to walk with you through a process of healing. So can I just pray for you right now? And so I had the opportunity to pray for her. And, um, you know, that began a journey that continues to this day of helping these wonderful folks move toward Jesus. And, and so that, uh, yeah, that's my story. That's a story. I can tell you hundreds of stories now. Um, but, but that, that, Often we wouldn't classify that as disciple making, at least in that those first few parts, because but I, I think it's important for us to think of that as that. And here's the thing. So what I what I want to tie this back into the topic for today is that um, you know, you can actually be systematic about that. And that's what the that's what the church needs to, you know, when we talk about it being a community of disciples with Jesus on his mission, well. The mission is to make disciples. And so we, we want to be intentional about that. And I think what happens to when the church becomes over-institutionalized, we focus on one aspect of the church and make that the, the big deal. In fact, I think it was Alan Hirsch that we, when we were talking with him, we talked about how we kind of made the, the, the worship gathering um, the, the main focus of the church in the, in the, in the 20th century. And, Alan has this great thing. I think, Jason, you brought it up. He said, uh, you know, if you want to learn how to be a great, great chess player, you need to play without your queen. And once you learn how to win without the queen, then, you know, bring the queen back. It's not that the queen shouldn't be there. It's just that, you know, if you overemphasize that, you're, you're, gonna, you're not going to be as good a player. And the, for the church in the 20th century, the, the worship service kind of became the queen. It's like, if we're doing that well, then we're in good shape. But that's only one dimension of what being the church is. And really, the main focus, instead of focusing on the worship service as the main event, focusing on making disciples, that includes certainly the gathered church, but also includes me riding the elevator with my neighbors um, as a part of it and, and figuring out how to celebrate that and how to get, get better at that. That's what, that's what the church needs to be focused on. And then the, the worship gathered, the gathered church has its rightful place in the overall ecosystem of the church. So um, that's, that's the big thing that I've learned here. It's Charlie, I, f I feel like you need to say something now. You got an anointed oh, word. <laughs> yeah, I want to blow it all up. No, I don't want to blow it all up. But um, let me just re remind us that the only verb in Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is the verb to make disciples. The teaching, baptizing, and going are instrumental to the end, which is to make disciples. And that's, a, that's just an important thing to keep. And, and I'm reinforcing what Steve said. The other thing I think is important, and I'm going to be a little prophetic here, in the interest of being having an incarnational apologetic, that not only are we able to defend the faith and argue our points and, and, and defend scripture, that's, I think we all agree that empirical and rational thinking is still a good thing. That kind of clears the, 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 clears the rubble and makes a way. 
But at some point, one of the things I am noticing is a cowardice on the part of followers of Jesus to actually verbally share the gospel sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we're going to just kind of be and hope it kind of oozes out. At some point, you have to share yeah. the scandal of the cross. At yeah. some point, you yeah. actually have to share Jesus died for our sins and rose again the third day. And I want to give a, I want to give a personal story, Jason, that I, I think I can do quickly. To give an example, they, they wouldn't have had any of this language, the friends of mine. But before I was a Christian, I was a practitioner of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's Transcendental Meditation. And it was a scientific technique. It was part of a New Age movement going on. George Har you can hear the George Harrison music in the background. And so, but my, I'd had three ulcers. I was intense. My parents thought this would help me. And I, but I had a bunch of Christians praying for me, sharing the gospel, inviting me to gatherings. <clears throat> and I remember a few months before I made a public profession of faith, I remember being in the meditation center and opening my eyes and looking around at all the pictures and flowers. And I had never used this word in my life before. And the word came to my mind, this is idolatry. And whatever I am, I'm not a Hindu. And I read Maharishi's book, and on page 82 of The Science of Being, I remember throwing the book across the room. I won't repeat the language I used as an unsanctified person. But what, what I'm saying is the Holy Spirit was at work calling right. me to the way of Jesus even before I had made a profession of faith. Right. And, and then I heard Handel's Messiah at Christmas time and couldn't start crying, couldn't stop crying. I gave up my meditation. My parents were angry because they put some money into it. Um, and they were mainline Protestants. Church was a 55-minute snooze fest for me growing up. And so when I finally came to Christ, then it was like this excitement to learn how to follow him. And then the, the rest of my life has been a thank you to the church that embraced me, enveloped me, helped me grow, was with me through my family implosion, was with me through personal crises, believed in me as a young man. And so I would say that... Um, there's, we, we, you start discipling the, the moment you have your first encounter, but I would also say prophetically, let's not be afraid as the spirit right. leads to, to, to give people the opportunity to believe the story. And yeah. to, the other thing is when someone comes to Christ, there's four stories that converge their personal story, the story of the person or persons witnessing to them, God's yeah. great story, and then that community story. So these yeah. four stories all become a tapestry in one conversion and new life that happens. And so um, I, I want to I want, I be part of that. In fact, the reason I pursued my education was to be able to talk to pre-Christians, to talk to non-Christians and be able to say, hey, you know what? This, this story is powerful. So I love what you're saying there. You're, you're illustrating in that story that the, you can't separate evangelism from discipleship. Right, I right, think right. there's a theologian, Longenecker, who said in the book of Acts and Luke specifically, the message of Jesus and the mission of God are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. You can't respond to Jesus without saying yes to his mission. And Can I jump, can I jump in with an illustration? I, I think many of our listeners have heard the story of Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus that had left their first love. And Jesus was giving them a warning. And you notice what he said there was, he didn't say repent and feel what you fe felt at first. He said, repent and do what you did at first. And I, I remember studying deeply and learning from much smarter people than me. Ephesus was doctrinally sound, ecclesially strong, um, morally, you know, firm. And Jesus commended them. There's two things that happen when we get attracted to Jesus. One, we can't get enough of him. I'll call that worship personal and corporate. And two, we can't tell enough people about him. And what they had done, I remember when this happened in my life, when I was first converted, I went out and told everybody. I admit I was probably immature and obnoxious at times, but no, few people were offended. They were just kind of amazed at this guy. I was so happy. And by the way, people came to Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I could, and I wanted to, I mean, I went to five Easter services my first day, a year as a Christian. And by the way, if you don't sing Christ, the Lord is risen today, you haven't had church on Easter. But, you know, but I was so excited to be with God and to tell other people about him. Now, there's wisdom. We understand that. 
I would say this, a lot of people who want to, quote, prophetically denounce or separate from institutional church, uh, don't, uh, we can't let ourselves off the hook. Jesus' warning to the Ephesians is, remember what you did at first. You yeah. gathered for him and you went out for him. Yeah. And then but the, the, out of that, the church is created. Yeah. And William Temple's great quote, we're the only voluntary agency that exists for our non-members. <laughs> and, and I think what happens is when we get off mission, our gathering becomes preferences. When we're on mission, our gathering becomes equipping, empowering, inquiring, learning in order to be better on mission. And mm -hmm. so I get excited about that. And so, I, by the way, I, bring, I, I, use a, I use Revelation 2 for myself about once a month. Am I still loving his presence and am I still looking for ways to share his goodness? Right. I, I love that. And I think it was Eugene Peterson who, when asked, you know, someone asked him, hey, I, I love the church, but I don't love the institutional church. And his response was, oh, I didn't know there was any other kind. And I, and I love what you just articulated there that and even I mean, this whole hour, those of you just again, if you're just tuning in right here, we've got about 14 minutes left. Uh, we're with Dr. Charlie Self, uh, historian, theologian, talking about what is the church, trying to crack that code of what, what should the church be? Or we're also with uh, Steve Pike author of Next Wave, Discovering the 21st Century Church. So that's, this is, we're in chapter one right now. What is the church? And, and Dr. Self, you've, you've really articulated, you know, even as early as the third century, some of the problems that we see today were happening and there needed to be a, that revelation to recalibration. And it happens in my own life, right? Like, like you just mentioned in yours. Uh, let's not forget that we wouldn't have most of the New Testament had Paul not thought there needs to be a recalibration. I need to write a letter back to these churches so that they can become more and more like Jesus. And so, uh, so we're in good company. And I would like maybe even where do you see you know the need? Uh, we talked about discipleship being the emphasis of the Great Commission. Uh, maybe not becoming a disciple, but becoming a discipler, right? That that would be the, the Great Commission is not become a disciple. It's one that become a, one who makes disciples. Um, and, and, and where are those opportunities? And I think a lot of, let me frame it a little bit more. A lot of what we do at ArtSpeak where we're helping with branding and websites, it's not just about a, a veneer. It's about getting the message down. Um, and, and to get your message right, you have to understand who you are, who is the church. That's what we're talking about. But I think in the last question that was brought up, we also hear, I, I hear a, a little bit of a tension that I'd like, love to unpack and maybe frustrate, but how do we make church missional and not simply focused on what our families need? And now if he's talking, you know, like, I don't, how do you be, I don't know that, can you be missional without thinking about what people need? Like, I, I think you, you have to serve who you have in order to say, Hey, we have something for you. We have good news. What, what's good news to them that they want to reach. Right? So that's what you have to, your, our message has to overlap with the hopes and the dreams of those we want to serve and reach. I think, I think that's why, that's why clarifying what a healthy disciple and disciples look like actually does both of those at the same time. So we can say with confidence that, that Christ and scripture and community will help your marriage and family be strong. And we can even actually go into granular detail. The, the methods of that can vary. And in, in larger urban settings from the third century to the present day, those have included programs. In the case of what we're talking about, micro churches, house churches, churches in the hard places, it'll be more relational. But when, when you're focused on the outcomes of what it means to be a disciple, and you can share those with non-Christians, with people on their way to Jesus, then helping a family is a good thing. And the other thing is you create a language together. Can I just challenge those in spiritual leadership? We are the CLOs of our community. We're the chief language and learning and listening officers. And the language we use creates a topography of how people see the world. I want to answer that question directly. Uh, me, there's no contradiction between meeting the needs of families and being on mission. And here's the good news. Once we get this disciple-making ethos in us, then even the newest Christian becomes an asset 
to the community of both in the church and outside. And a, a healthier marriage starts helping a struggling marriage. And obviously we can get mental health professionals and books and resource, you know, but in today's world, we can network that and resource that without huge programs. But what happens is you begin to make a relational basis or somebody's got deep questions and we find out somebody who's geeking out on apologetics can help them. And what happens is, and I want to say this uh, to every spiritual leader, the greatest assets of your church are the people gathered where they are all week and the expertise they bring they may not even know about. That's the asset. And what we do is start mobilizing it. This is how I grew. Um, I have a lot of weaknesses, but I had a couple of strengths that they picked up on and they let me start helping. They let me start teaching. They let me start doing some things. I can't tell you all the mistakes I made, but I think, I think that's, the, that's the key is to get rid of the either or. The other problem with the American church, less so European, but mostly American, is we became consumer centric. Um, the last half of the 20th century is the only time in church history that you've had this spe hyper-specialization and consumerism. Now, there were young people meetings, college meetings, other things before, but my goodness, from the 1950 to 2000, the amount of specialization, hierarchy, careerism, consumerism. In fact, I, I will say prophetically, a lot of big churches are monuments to a 30-minute talk, and they're monuments to personalities and structures. Now, we don't tear it all down, but what we do is see it transform so that every disciple is making disciples. Now, that's, oh, I love it. We don't tear it all down, right? No one says the old wine is bad. We're just saying, here's what we have to build moving forward. Again, next, in, in two weeks, uh, Steve and I will be back with a church planner in Berkeley, California, talking about discipleship and reimagining that. And uh, and uh, you guys are going to love that. Um Here's a question from someone listening right now live. It seems like it takes a lot of time to disciple, right? And I would agree. There's no efficient way to build a relationship. Uh, how do we create a culture of discipleship that is manageable for church leaders? And I'd love for you to push into any practical examples that you see happening where it's, where it's starting to flourish. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I'll start. And then once again, let Charlie clean it up here. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, one of the things that I started noticing was, again, I talked about disciple making is seeking and saving. And it seems like, and when I think about those two things, I, I think the seeking side is when we're deliberately uh, engaging with people who are not yet following Jesus and help them move toward faith in Christ. And then saving side is, is helping people that are, that have decided to follow Jesus now grow in his grace and his truth and become disciple makers themselves. And so the saving side is where a lot of the energy of the church in the 20th century was devoted. It was like, if, if the theory was, if we, if we really focus on making people better followers of Jesus, then everything that fixes everything. So the intentionality of the church was really focused on that saving side. And the problem with that is that there wasn't as much intentionality on the seeking side. And so I would suggest in answer to that question, like, yes, disciple making does take time. And if, and we need to make sure we give, we give intentional time. We structure the habits and the rhythms of our, of the faith community that we lead around the need for both seeking and saving. And so a real practical example would be um, here in, in, in Denver and in, I, it's everywhere. I think there, there's a app called meetup.com and it's, it's a place where people can just create a gathering for people around something, around a common interest. So you can have a meetup about mountain biking or a meetup about uh, crocheting or whatever, you know, it doesn't, it, it's up to the people. It's very empowering. And so it's not uncommon for there to be meetups that are, uh, you know, uh, created by people. Um, and so one of our churches that was starting in, 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 in an urban neighborhood decided to have a meetup for the church. And so that's what they called Bible study. Instead of calling it Bible study, they call it meetup uh, to study this text or whatever. And what they started to realize was, wait a minute, you know, if we're going to give, if we, that's good on the disciple or on the saving side, but how about what are we doing on the seeking side? So bottom line is they adjusted their schedule. And this is my answer to this question is 
make sure that you kind of have a broadband approach. If you want to, if you want to uh, create structure your church around a broadband approach to disciple making that includes seeking and saving, don't just do everything on the saving side, do things on the seeking side. And so what these guys did was they, they said at once uh, on one week, we're going to do church oriented meetups that have to do with, you know, Bible study or studying a book together or something that helps us to grow in our great, in our faith in Jesus. On the other week, we're going to do a seeking meetup. And actually for them, that meant going and being part of a meetup that somebody else, not from the church had established. So they're going to go join in with a mountain biking meetup or something with people who are not necessarily followers of Jesus so they can build relationship. And it's very intentional. So that they saw that as a balanced way. And so thinking about if we're doing something over here, how do we do something over there? So that's, that's one way, practical way you can kind of make room for discipleship in the schedule, which means you're probably going to have to stop doing some things so that you can, you have time to do other things that are uh, on the seeking side. So Charlie, what do you have to say? Um, four things that I think will be helpful to confirm Steve's uh, narrative. First of all, more white space on a church calendar means more heart space for our neighbors. Wow. And so we have to be intentional. We have to be intentional. Um, and also there are varying uh, types of connectedness. So I want to just make it really granular. Um, Every believer can remember somebody's name and be there to pray for them and be a friend. When they hit an issue they don't know, part of this disciple-making outcome thinking is, you know what, I don't know that, but let's go talk with somebody I think may know that answer. So number two, we need to know in the community kind of where the expertise is or where the learning curves are so we can connect people to that resource. A third thing is you can have systematic learning and growing, both on the seeking and saving side, but you just need to be adaptable in how you do that. And so you can have, you can have what we, I would call table talk moments. You can have a lot of ways to explore. Uh, take N.T. Wright's Simply Christian for the seeker, and you can have a conversation. And then the fourth thing, the spiritual leaders then become kind of orchestrators of the assets of the community. They begin to know where the expertise is. Um, and so somebody comes in, I'm going to be really, really, somebody comes in with a deep, deep history of abuse. And they, and, and first of all, everybody can be a, a good brother or sister. So they're feeling the love of Jesus. So you connect them with someone in the church that's been walking that journey. And then they, they in turn can say, hey, we need some more counsel here. Here's some mental health work that will help you. But what happens is there's at least two or three people that know their name. And, and, and I think this is the thing that I just want to leave us with, that uh, it's an amazing thing when you, you are remembered by two or three people. Mm -hmm. And over 30 years ago, famous church growth people said, if people experience Jesus and make two or three friends, they'll stay in the community. Mm. And, the, and, and the pastor or elders, the, the people kind of coordinating the leadership, if they'll begin to awaken the expertise of the community, then nobody feels burdened. Yeah. Well, I can give an hour to, to share what I know and to be a friend. I'm not yeah. an eternal counselor. And that you also don't get locked into, you will now be a discipler for 18 <laughs> months or 24 months. Well, maybe you do have some of those programs and those are fine but you're not locking people into a system. You're opening a door for a relationship. Oh, fantastic. I wish uh, we had more time. We are about out of time. So I do want to uh, just give an opportunity for people to connect with you. Maybe we can uh, go around uh, a couple resources for those uh, watching today. Uh, you can go to the next wave.community slash slash exponential and you can get a, uh, some discount codes there to the online community. We're having this conversation every week where we really feel like there's good fruit happening among leaders that are wrestling these things to ground. There's some discount codes to become a part of that community. It's all based on Steve's book, The Next Wave, uh, Discovering the 21st Century of the Church. Uh, but it's really uh, the quote that starts in the beginning of that, that we don't need just best practices written down in a book, but we need a real-time community, real-time conversations like this one today. So I want to give a big shout out to 
uh, Brooks and all the exponential team for inviting us to be a part of this. Thank you so much. And Dr. Self, I want to give uh, a moment for you to be able to say how maybe people can connect with you. One other resource uh, that I think we can drop in the chat here is thejesusxp.com. Super beta, but the Jesus XP, some, uh, it's a simple framework. The Gospels is the curriculum, but we're giving away some framework. There's a discount code for some Bibles that you can buy. Uh, but really, just uh, would love to connect with you. I'll send you an email if you drop your name on that website. Uh, we just want to help people We're really with this discipleship conversation, how to reach more people in the 21st century. That's what, that's my call. Uh, that's, that's Arts Be Creative. That's what the company I lead. That's what we're all about. Dr. Self, thank you so much. How can, how can anybody that's listening, how can they connect with you some more? Well, let me just remind them, they can go to madetoflourish.org and we want to give away resources so that uh, our gathering faith is connected with our scattered work and, uh, really help people see that. And then uh, through, through that site, they can also reach me and I'd be glad to be a, an encourager to anyone. And by the way, I'm a part of Steve's community. And whenever I can, I tune in to learn and uh, he gives me the opportunity to share a little bit. So I would encourage everyone, please join that platform. You will be revitalized and encouraged. Oh, that's awesome. I appreciate it. My favorite quote, and then Steve, I'd love for you to wrap up here, but my favorite quote today, more heart space on the church calendar means more, or more, more space, more white space, white quote, space, white more space. White space yeah. on the church calendar means more heart space for our neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. I'll tell you yeah. what, if you have one, one takeaway from this whole call about how to, what is minimum viable church and, and, and what is the next century look like for discipleship and evangelism, more white space on the church calendar means more heart space for our neighbors. So, so good. Steve. Thanks, Jason. I think we're, the, the, we could talk forever. So I don't, yeah. I, I just want to, I just want to say amen to everything. Thanks for, thanks for leading us in this conversation today. Through that. We'll uh, see you guys in a couple of weeks and thanks for being a part.